Welcome everybody. This is Taming the Shrew Flights Podcast number four for this year. I'm sitting here with sort of a, a passing of the torch or a changing of the guards here amongst the Air Care Resident Assistant Medical Directors. So uh, who's here with me? So this is Andrew Latimer. I'm the uh, outgoing uh, Resident Assistant Medical Director for Air Care. Uh, I have graduated and will be the uh, Emergency Medical Services Fellow at the University of Washington in, in Seattle. And this is Charlie Kircher. I'm one of the rising fourth-year residents at University of Cincinnati, and I have the uh, honor of being one of the resident medical directors for air care for the coming academic year. And I'm Thomas Kupp. I'm one of the other co-remedies along with Charlie Kircher for this upcoming year. Awesome. So Latimer has uh, deviously written up some challenging airway cases that we are going to uh, sweat through here today. And our uh, rising class of soon-to-be R2 flight docs has also sweated through them and lent some uh, very prescient comments on the website that you should check out. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and launch into case number one. So just as a uh, short recap, you're going to a scene out east from Cincinnati and... um, you land and find out that what you're dealing with is a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the face. So uh, as you approach, you find uh, a large crowd gathered around a male patient, probably in his 30s or 40s, who is uh, kind of uh, on his knees, leaning forward. And the case is described as blood pouring from a large and complex wound to his face with significant amounts of tissue and bone hanging and dripping onto the concrete. Uh, He is gurgling and moaning. Um, They've tried to lay him down several times and he got very agitated, did not like that, and desperately uh, struggled to sit back up. Um, So they've got him on a monitor. He is tachycardic at 132. He is mildly hypertensive, 140 over 80. Tachypnic at 24 and satty 93 on room air. So again, he's leaning forward uh, on his hands and knees. A lot of blood surrounding him on the concrete. And uh, the HENT exam is important to note as we decide what we're going to do for this guy. So Uh, The mandible is definitely fractured, and what remains of it seems to be in two pieces, um, including some of it that seems to be extending up into the patient's mouth. Uh, He's got multiple loose teeth sort of hanging out of the airway. Uh, Submandibularly, it's hard to tell what's going on, but you can see some exposed bone in this area, which may or may not be hyoid. Uh, quite a bit of bleeding from uh, from the face, obviously. Nose and maxilla unrecognizable. He's got an open globe injury on the left. Extensive soft tissue swelling around the thyroid cartilage and the anterior neck. But neuro exam, it's important to note that even though he's not able to vocalize words, his eyes are open and he is briskly following commands. So he is in. This is an interesting case. So as you are in the aircraft, still in the air, and uh, you get a radio report from the ground that this is a self-inflicted gunshot wound. What are, what are some of the first thoughts that are coming into, into your mind? So the first thought that comes to my mind, you know, is, is trying to see what sort of report we can get from the ground crew. Um, with the facial trauma, uh, you know, we'd be worried 
a priori about mandibular injury, um, making our normal airway anatomy, you know, difficult and essentially taking this out of what we're comfortable with. And then the other question is, you know, what's the trajectory of the ballistic? What type of ballistic is it? Is it something where we have to manage both, you know, intracranial injury and a facial injury, depending on where the, the weapon was pointed and what trajectory the projectile, or in this case, projectiles took? You may have to worry about, you know, managing herniation as well as managing this this uh, person's airway. You also worry about injury to the, the neck structures, uh, particularly the carotid artery um, or the jugular vein causing um, worsening uh, uh, massive bleeding. And so my thought going out would be, you know, res- cardi- uh, resuscitation of any uh, hemorrhage, hemorrhage control, and then making decisions about whether there is a significant intracranial injury and whether we needed to manage this patient's airway, and if so, what we would do for that. Um, because if you have to manage it, you're going to have to get unconventional because this is not a conventional case. Yeah, I agree with that uh, totally. Um, another thing you want to worry about as well is the patient suicidal. You know there's a firearm involved. So scene safety, where is the firearm now? Does the patient have access to it? Is it just laying in the bushes near this patient thrashing around on the roadway, or has it been secured by the police? Um, something else, too, to consider is you get a patient like this, Um, You may have to really consider if they're safe to fly in an aircraft, either unrestrained or unchemically restrained, uh, just for provider safety. Again, the guy just tried to kill himself with a shotgun, um, from what we hear at least. So some considerations you definitely have to have. Yeah, one of our colleagues, Jason Ping, has a saying that is uh, useful for me to remember, which is whatever the emergency is, it's the patient's emergency. It's not my emergency and so uh, we need to do whatever we can to not turn it into something that is also emergent for us and make sure that scene is safe before we really approach. So Charlie, you, you brought up a lot of the, the initial clinical concerns. So I think this case, one of, one of the main forks in the road on this case is, do we think that we need to manage his airway on scene before we take him anywhere, whether it's by ground or air? Um, so wh- what do you guys think about how to, how to decide which of those forks to take, yay or nay? Well, I think you can start with our traditional, you know, criteria for intubation, and and that's a good place to start. So first, you know, set of vitals, it appears that he's oxygenating well and ventilating well. I mean, there is good air exchange through whatever mess is left of his uh, oropharynx and hypopharynx, so he's oxygenating and ventilating. The question of airway protection is a difficult one. Some of that goes into mental status, which he seems to have an intact mental status, and it seems like he doesn't have any significant intracranial injury at this point. And that's really where it's going to come down to a gestalt when you get on scene. Certainly when you have blunt trauma, you know there's going to be worsening edema uh, and worsening bleeding. Um, For him, the question is going to be, you know, is this going to get worse before it gets better? I think the reason to intervene on scene would be if you think that in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, by the time this person gets to your trauma center, um, that you're going to go from a difficult airway to an impossible airway, knowing that his anatomy is uh, not favorable for a surgical solution. So you may be, in that case, forced to act to try and manage it on scene, and then you know, you'll be able to get more hemorrhage control if that's, uh, if that's what's indicated as well. So I think it, it, some of it comes down to the neurologic exam, um, some of it comes down to his cooperation, uh, and then what you think is going to happen, almost kind of trying to predict how this is going to go based on what you see there. Kind of on that same token, another consideration on this particular patient is the amount of hemorrhage. Um, In this description, there's kind of a lot of bleeding, and it may be really challenging to control this bleeding in any other way uh, that doesn't involve uh, putting a tube in this guy's face. So one option, obviously, would be potentially combat gauze if you are are able to get this patient intubated, but 
packing his face or mouth or his gaping maw, whatever's left with combat gauze may occlude his airway, so that may be a consideration. But if you think he's not going to bleed to death, then you take that off the table, you know, that gives you more options. And I think another consideration also is distance. Are, are we... Are we 10 minutes by ground or 15 minutes by ground to a level one trauma center? That would be unusual to fly to one of these sorts of places, but not unheard of. Um, if you can get this patient in an ambulance potentially by ground to where you have more resources, you know that would change change the picture rather than out in a, uh, in a field in rural Ohio where you're um, 35, 40 minute flight from someplace. One thing to keep in mind with regard to the question of is he going to be able to protect and maintain his airway if you don't intubate him, is the fact that it doesn't seem from this description like we have tried handing him a yank hour yet. We're allowing him to sit up, which is the only way he's going to be able to maintain that airway. But if you add in the uh, just handing the guy a yank hour to, to do self-suctioning, you may take a guy who was borderline with regard to whether or not you felt like he could maintain the airway to a guy where you feel pretty comfortable. And I have had essentially this exact case minus the concern for active hemorrhage. In that case, it was just a slow venous trickle, and I wasn't worried that he was going to end up in hemorrhagic shock. And so I just sat the guy up, handed him a yank hour, and I said, do you feel like you're breathing relatively comfortable now? And he gave me a thumbs up. And I didn't feel like he was any risk to me to load in the aircraft, so I flew him in that way. And at that point, then, the only downside is with each breath, he is spraying little small dropules of blood throughout my aircraft that I'm going to have to clean up later, uh, which I'm happy to do. But the yank hour may improve the situation tremendously. Now, if we do decide, for the reasons that we've just discussed, that... We feel this guy is going to lose his entire blood volume out of his face. And so we're going to need to get aggressive about hemorrhage control, and we don't feel like we can do that leaving him wide awake. Then we're sort of forced to head toward a securing the airway route. So let's say for a minute that we decide that's the way we're going to need to go. Specifically then, how, how are we going to do that? So, I mean, you have a couple of options here, but I think... One of the things to consider is taking a, a weight look in a patient like this, especially given that some of your backups and your adjuncts may not be as successful in a case like this. For example, once you dis if you have made the decision to paralyze a patient like this, he's not somebody you'll likely be able to bag successfully or even use an extraglottic device in the same way you would anticipate in a, a patient with normal anatomy. So uh, one of the things we discussed is possibly using ketamine uh, to take an awake look and to see what sort of airway anatomy you're looking at prior to uh, uh, making the decision to push a paralytic. I think ketamine's a great choice, and I agree with, with Dr. Scup. I would also keep the patient seated in the, the, the position that maximizes his own respiratory status, which in this case is, you know, practically bowled upright and tripoding a little bit. So um, if you, you'll maintain, he'll maintain his... Uh, respiratory drive after the ketamine, which helps you because that may be your best landmark as to where this gentleman's airway actually is. Um, and so if you can get him in a situation where he stays upright and stays breathing, but is calm, then you could, you know, then you could have an assistant help with, you know, hemorrhage control, gauze, combat gauze, so that you can actually blot away as much of the blood and you can get the best visualization possible. Once you feel like you have a visualization and audio feedback of where the air exchange is actually happening, then you can either try and pass um, an endotracheal tube or pass a bougie and feel tracheal rings and sort of go quasi-blind quasi um, 
and then listen for you know air exchange through the tube once you feel like you may have a tube in the airway, um, and then obviously back that up with capnography to confirm. But that would probably be my approach: is trying to get some sort of control of the airway with either with a bougie initially or possibly um, a tube, depending on how confident you felt that you were actually aiming for the trachea with with, with said device. So if that's what you're doing and you're leaving the patient sitting up, where are you in relation to the patient? I am trying to be in front of the patient, and then you could sort of, I'm trying to be in front of the patient looking head on, so not at the head of the bed, but just kind of like the opposite where you would be looking straight face to face with the gentleman and then using a, a blade plus assistance to try to move whatever's left of his mandible and soft palate out of the way to visualize where that air exchange is coming from. So face-to-face tomahawk, Tomahawk, essentially. And uh, DL or VL? VL's useless in this scenario, I think. Agreed. Agreed. Now, I think the other option for positioning, so we, we, it looks like this guy is actually on the ground itself, not even on a bed, which would potentially make things amenable if he's sitting up to actually sort of standing up behind him and... uh, and and getting in that position, which uh, I don't know if it would end up being easier or not, but it's an option uh, to keep in mind. Another option in a patient like this, which I've employed successfully in a a, a case similar to this, was um, getting multiple suction devices. We've got, uh, in air care, we've got the the super sucker um, behind the the dock seat in the back of the aircraft that's battery-powered. And obviously, if you can get this guy to potentially, if he's following commands, just get up and walk to the squad uh, if he's leaning forward, um, maybe he's holding our super sucker and suctioning his own airway out, as uh, Bill suggested. But getting him into a squad where we can use their suction as well. So now you have two suction devices, potentially having him hold one of his own, give him ketamine. And if you use two suction devices, laying him back and then doing a traditional look from the head of the bed, using two, a Yankauer and a super sucker to maintain suction and uh, see if you can clear the clear the space and take a look. It was uh, successful in that particular instance. And one thing in the cases I've seen similar to this is they can be surprisingly easy to get a direct uh, uh, view of the cords in these patients just because a lot of the structures that normally restrict our ability to to see the cords are destroyed. Um, so they, they move out of the way rather easy if you can get, you know, if you can get everything else optimized. Yeah, I've never seen this in print anywhere, uh, but I have seen with my own eyes many times how hard your laryngoscopy is actually going to be for the self-inflicted gunshot wound to the face depends on whether or not that gun was stuck in the mouth or below the chin. If it was below the chin and they blew apart the mandible, it's usually easier than you expect because now the mandible is no longer there to restrict your ability to pull that tongue out of the way forward. Uh, But if the mandible's still intact because they shot intraoral, then you've got just as much blood and, uh, and, and difficulty with visualization, but you've still got an intact mandible. And so that's going to be a really difficult airway. However, it may actually then make crike easier if that's the way that it needs to go because there's going to be less trauma to the neck. Uh, one thing that, that we haven't even touched on, and it's probably because it sort of goes without saying uh, to us, but it may not to everybody listening, is... What about C-spine immobilization in this guy? Don't we have to, you know, head block, strap this guy down, put a collar on? Crickets. Yeah, uh, always a fun question. Um, I uh, This guy does not get a C-collar uh, when I'm managing him. Um, 
maybe if we can do it once he is intubated and packaged and his face is packed with combat gauze and everything else is awesome and more of the head blocks than the sea collar and that's just to stop his paralyzed body and his head from flopping around when we move him um more than the cervical collar and that's kind of a can of worms that i probably will uh will not uh, not bust open yeah unless there was uh, some history of concomitant blunt trauma there there's good literature to say that we are safe uh, not immobilizing this penetrating head wound. Totally agree with you there. So that's not something that you need to worry about. Um, any final thoughts on case one before we take curveball to case number two? No, no. All right, sweet. So case number two, we are called to a patient with a stab wound to the left neck. So we arrive, we ask the patient his name, and he tells us his name is John in a slightly hoarse and muffled voice. And what we find is a one centimeter stab wound in the left anterior neck along the anterior border of the SCM uh, and about three centimeters north of the clavicle. So in other words, right at about the level of the cricoid cartilage. Uh, So right at the intersection of zones one and two. And there is a small amount of sub-Q emphysema along the anterior neck, but no significant active bleeding, no carotid brewery. And the folks on scene tell us that the, the guy is more hoarse than he was when we first arrived. So blood pressure's fine, heart rate's 104, respiratory rate's 24, and pulse ox is 92 on 15 liters by non-rebreather. We got a 25 minute flight back to UC. So uh, let's talk about decision making around this guy. His, his vitals aren't uh, crashing, they're not the greatest. Do, do we need to capture this guy's airway before transport? What do you guys think? I think the big concern here, the red flag, is that his voice has become, has become more hoarse, right? You, he's got a hoarse voice, um, and if you even if the listeners out there just touch their own neck where we're describing, I mean, that's essentially a stab wound to the trachea and the carotid pulse that you can feel on your own neck. Obviously, your concern for a dynamic uh, hoarseness would uh, would be concerning for uh, an expanding hematoma in the neck that potentially could compromise the airway. So I think that's the big, the big concern here. I think if you take that out of the picture... Maybe you've got a little bit more time, and you you know if the if the patient's voice is not changed, and maybe the location of the stab wound is a little bit different, because um, intubating this patient, as we're about to discuss, has some risks to it. Um, but I think my concern with this patient is uh, a dynamic process and an expanding neck hematoma that could make him unintubatable from that level, um, you know, in 25, 30 minutes. So interestingly, even though if the average layman looked at this guy as opposed to the previous case, the, the layman would think, well, this guy's not nearly as bad off as the guy who just you know blew his face off with a gunshot. But what you're saying is this guy unequivocally gets intubated. Absolutely. Because you're more worried about what's going to happen to his airway over the course of the next 20, 25 minutes, whereas the first guy, who looks much worse to the layman, may actually be able to be, to do okay without innovating him on scene potentially as we discussed before so that's that's sort of uh, counterintuitive but worth considering absolutely this guy gives me the heebie-jeebies yeah yeah um all right so does anybody disagree uh, or everybody agrees that they want to innovate him before transport yeah i really want to emphasize i know i know you spoke to dr angley and of course with dr latimer but the progression of these penetrating neck injuries can be quite 
swift and in this scenario where we've painted a 25 minute flight you add on any additional transport unloading and offloading time and you're looking at a completely different airway in just a couple of minutes so i i am wholeheartedly behind being aggressive with these type of injuries to uh, manage the airway when you at least have a bit more reserve right right and uh so we we've got the picture that we've got here describes some pretty hard signs of airway injury. Um, we've got the sub-Q emphysema. Um, we've got uh, progressive hoarseness. We, we don't necessarily have strider described at this point, although that's something, certainly something we would want to be listening for. Uh, that would definitely be a hard sign. And it looks like we may be heading toward respiratory distress. Uh, although it right now is respiratory rate's 24 and it's not terrible, but we do have some hard signs there. So I would agree with you guys. Now something else that if, if we are going to give this guy some drugs here in a minute that are going to hinder his neuro exam that I think we need to consider is getting the best possible neuro exam before we impede it. Uh, because in addition to an airway injury, he may also have a, have a vascular injury. Um, so uh, what are some of the hard signs that we're looking for vascular-wise? Because certainly the trauma surgeons are, are going to be interested in whether or not they exist. I mean, any of your classic signs of a carotid dissection or injury would be, you know, any, any, fo any unilateral motor weakness um, that, you can, that you can identify um, would be useful to know. I think regardless, when he gets to your referral center, they'll proceed with a CT angio of a neck before they decide about OR exploration, but at least you know, doing whatever your quick and dirty stroke exam is on the patient to get a, a gross assessment of his, of his uh, function, looking specifically for, you know, lateralizing defects would be what I try and do. But I think he's getting a CTA of the neck when he gets there anyway. True, true. But if we bring this guy back uh, innovated and sedated without being able to describe with confidence what that neuro exam was before, then we, uh, we kind of look like chumps. And we don't like to look like chumps, except Latimer. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, how do we actually capture his airway then? Routine RSI. What do you guys think? He uh, it, it, is uh, Latimer. Correct me if I'm wrong. The uh, the case is not intended to describe any particular anatomic difficulty beyond whatever exists by the stab wound. Correct. Correct. That's my understanding. I think this is a patient that uh, obviously you need to plan for a backup uh, airway. The, the tough part here is that your concern for the injury around the trachea or the, the vascular injury is kind of at your rescue site, right, at the cricoid cartilage. Um, but I think you would plan out plan out uh, for potentially needing to explore that option, although uh, in theory you shouldn't have to. Um, so potentially marking things out, getting your equipment ready. Uh, this is a gentleman, again, I would probably take just a quick look um, awake if you could, although you could make an argument you don't really need to on this guy because you know you're going to intubate him kind of either way. Um, I may do that, push the ketamine, put the blade in, take a look, have the sucks drawn up and up against the syringe, and if we get a good view, you push the sucks, um, and, and you go ahead and you'll intubate the patient. Um, but uh, the big thing here is we've got... Sub-Q emphysema, we're concerned about a tracheal injury. We don't want to make that tracheal injury worse. We don't want to make a false passage, tear that trachea any further. We want to get the balloon of the endotracheal tube past that. So putting small objects that could potentially take a small hole and make it bigger uh, concern me. So things like a bougie, for example. I would, I would desperately avoid a bougie if at all possible in this patient. We, go ahead. I know I'd also like to emphasize, similar to the first case, some of your other 
backups may not be as uh, effective as uh, as they would be in some other uh, anatomically difficult patients. I mean, positive pressure above the area of injury, whether through an EGD or a bag valve mask, may actually complicate it. And in addition, um, you know, as we de- as we described the case, if there is a vascular injury and there is some bleeding into the airway that you do not initially see that. Uh, video may be actually far more challenging than direct. So whatever you can do to optimize that direct look the first time will be most likely your your best ability to successfully secure the airway. I think it um, the question of delayed versus rapid uh, sequencing of your uh, paralytic and your um, ketamine uh, or whatever your, your sedation of choice is um, really depends on whether you feel like this gentleman's adequately pre-oxygenated or, oxygenated or not. I think if you can pre-oxygenate him without the sedation, um, RSI may give you your best shot. Um, but if you feel like you need time to try and do that, knowing the limits Dr. Scup acknowledged, you can definitely make a case for delaying that and, and trying to get a look. But I think this gentleman's going to need to be intubated regardless. So I would use the chemical sequence that makes uh, makes one feel most comfortable in doing that. Um, and I essentially agree with what folks have said. Superglottic devices are, they are, are likely to worsen the um, the soft tissue uh, uh, swelling that you have, um, and if there's a tracheal disruption, you're just getting more subcutaneous air. So I think uh, a tube below the injury is what's necessary, and whether that's achieved through uh, direct laryngoscopy or through surgical cricothyrotomy will just kind of depend on the, the particulars of the anatomy. Yeah, th- this is the weird case where the patient may actually turn out to be quite easy to intubate but very challenging to bag or to manage by superglottic. Uh, And if it should come to it, it may be difficult to crike as well. Um, Assuming there is no uh, significant predictor of difficulty based on his baseline anatomy, I would have your back to do RSI on this guy. I do think that's reasonable. Uh, but I, I also would have your back to uh, to make the decision to do awake with ketamine and, and just have the, uh, the paralytic out and ready to go if necessary. One other thing in terms of just being as, uh, as gentle as possible to this traumatized airway is this would be one where basically as soon as I got the tip of the, uh, of the tube through the cords, uh, I would want to be popping that stylet to minimize the firmness of the tube as it goes on into the trachea. Uh, just to prevent it ripping open further. Um, any final thoughts on that case, guys, before we go to case three? Don't think so. Sounds good. Sweet. All right, case three. This one uh, This one sounded familiar. Um, all right, so we get, uh, we get called out to uh, rendezvous at a scene that is near a nursing home. And there we meet an ambulance where the the medics have a 350-pound, 65-year-old lady who's in respiratory distress. So she's got a mature trach, and uh, it seems that somehow she accidentally pulled out her uncuffed trach tube, which is the whole reason that uh, EMS was summoned. So EMS has tried several times to replace her trach tube through her tracheostomy without any success. And uh, the patient's getting agitated. She's tachypnic. And what EMS is trying to do is they are trying to bag her uh, with a pediatric mask over her stoma. And the patient is essentially fighting them on that attempt. Um, She's got a little bit of blood uh, to her anterior neck, sort of around the tracheostomy. They've got her on the monitor. 
She's sitting 84% with a good waveform, and she's tachycardic to 156. Uh, haven't been able to get a blood pressure on her at this point. So, thoughts? What do we do here? Yeah, these are always kind of nerve-wracking cases. I, uh, I'm always a little terrified by trach emergencies, and again, we're seeing more and more of these, I feel like. Um, so the big thing is we need, we need to get an airway on this lady. Um, and there's some really nice comments. Uh, I believe it was from Dr. McKee uh, commenting uh, on some opportunities. Uh, if we could get a little bit of background history, if we have anything available about why she has a trach, uh, is this because she had some massive HENT surgery from cancer and she's not in continuity? That's one thing, but maybe this is because she's uh, morbidly obese and it's related to... Uh, 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 an intubation in the hospital recently and she was unable to be weaned, weaned off of the trach and that's why she's still got her trach in place. If that's the case, she may still be in continuity from above um, and potentially just intubating her uh, if you're able to do that. She may not be all that easy to intubate from the description of her body habitus, but uh, obviously that's that's something to consider. Uh, something else to consider, again, would just be to try to get try to get either a trach or a tube uh, through the through the existing through the existing pathway. Figuring out how to do that is kind of your next big step. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I think the nice thing about her is that we're so used to, especially in the pre-hospital setting, thinking about the trauma airways and the need for, you know, cervical mobilization and, you know, flat spine precautions. You don't need any of that for her. So you can you can do things that will improve your ability to, um, to intubate her from above if she is in continuity, you know, things like building a ramp to better get her ear and her sternal notch at the same level, um, things like neck hyperextension, making a, a roll of, with, with whatever towels or blankets you have to help that, and that may also help bring her neck anatomy into more um, uh, clarity. I think the, the easiest thing to do is if the stoma is still patent, and it sounds like this is a mature stoma, to try and go through that with either a bougie or just a small endotracheal tube, I would I would try that first, and if that failed and she's in continuity, then I think going from above probably makes some sense. The reason this case sounds familiar is uh, I, I had a case essentially like this, and I, I feel like I probably could have just, without any particular intervention, uh, just replaced the trach tube or replaced an ET tube in that stoma. But I wanted to make things as, as easy on myself and on the patient as possible. And they did have IV access, so just gave a, an induction dose of ketamine. Then I went with a pediatric bougie and gently placed that uh, through the stoma into the trachea until I got hold up, just verified where I was at. Uh, and then I, I placed, uh, I believe, a 6-0-ET tube over that pediatric bougie, uh, confirmed it with waveform. And uh, it really it was pretty easy. And at that point, the the patient, once she awakened from the ketamine, was was comfortable, was breathing well. Um, I think the reason she was in uh, in respiratory distress prior to that is because she was continuously on some degree of positive pressure uh, uh, through a, a bedside vent with her trach. And obviously, when she lost the positive pressure, she was that's when she was in uh, respiratory distress. The interesting thing that I then faced was, well, I've basically just essentially solved her problem. So do I really then, I, you know, I, I hadn't, I had placed a 6-OET tube as opposed to replacing a, a formal trach tube. And so I didn't feel like I could just send her back to the nursing home with that. But at the same time, I really didn't feel like she needed to fly uh, since I had essentially 
resolved any emergent issue with her. So I just talked to the to the EMS crew there and said, how do you guys feel about going uh, by ground with me and this lady? And, uh, and we went ahead and went by ground to UC, got an ENT consult, replaced the trach tube, and back she went the same day to the nursing home. Yeah, I think practically just, I mean, for transport's sake, and if, if this is a case where you're called to act, the only other thing I would add is just thinking about the depth to which you need to go is shallower than anyone thinks. Yep. So just, you know, just make sure we're not main stemming these folks. And then if you need to, it's also okay. You can cut the endotracheal tube short so it's not <coughs> flopping around in the breeze when you put the person on, on their vent. Anything else uh, you guys wanted to say about that one? I think the big thing here is um, this is kind of a plea to everyone listening out there, anybody practicing pre-hospital care. Uh, as the population in the United States ages and as they get fatter, um, we're going to see uh, we're going to see more patients with trachs out in the community, and we're going to see more trachea, uh, trach emergencies. Um, so whenever you get a chance to familiarize yourself with uh, trachs, um, the differences between a cuffed and fenestrated and uncuffed trachs, and um, how they're placed and how the dilators work inside of them, just pl playing with this equipment and asking questions of your medical directors and um, just getting more experience with these because I think we're going to see a lot more of these uh, as they come up, and these can be rather challenging cases if you're unfamiliar with the anatomy. Wouldn't you know, we had a Taming the Shrew post about trachs that was absolutely outstanding. Way back in December of 2013, I didn't even remember we'd been around that long, but uh, we will definitely uh, link to that post uh, from this one so that you guys can review that because uh, I think it was really useful. So just some, uh, some overall thoughts about airway management in the, in the HEMS pre-hospital setting. Um, I think a lot of times people try to jump ahead and skip the really critical step of articulating to themselves and to their partner, if we're going to do this, if we are going to capture this airway, what is our indication? Because many times when you think that through, you may discover that you don't really have the indication that you thought you had. And if you don't, then maybe you are better off focusing on other things and getting the patient transported. Uh, but if you if you do have that indication and you're both in agreement on it, then uh, you just take it from there. Is it a crash? Is it difficult? If, it, if, if I predict difficulty, is it anatomic and or physiologic? And if it's difficult, uh, if I'm on the difficulty airway algorithm, still I'm usually going to end up at RSI as long as I think that it's reasonably likely that I will succeed with RSI and as long as I feel very confident that if I fail to intubate, I will at least be able to oxygenate and ventilate by bagging or by eye gel. So um, we, we just need to train ourselves to really think through those algorithms uh, religiously every time. Other, other uh, final thoughts from you guys? Just to emphasize one more point that uh, I think you made clear with the last case especially, but sometimes one of the most challenging decisions that we can make is the decision not to fly, especially when it's in the best interest of the patient. That can be very difficult to make for a number of reasons, but especially in these complex airways, I think that is a, a good point and another uh, tool to have in your back pocket. Sometimes just having the, the resources and the crew and the setting of uh, the back of an ambulance or um, another another place to get uh, initial treatment is sometimes the best thing for the patient, not always being on a helicopter. Right on. So um, 
a couple of shout-outs here. First of all, Kircher, Scott Latimer, thank you guys very much for your uh, expertise and wisdom and time today. Uh, huge thanks goes out to Jeff Hill for all of his help in putting this whole series and this whole uh, online air care uh, orientation curriculum together. And uh, finally, uh, to the entire R1 class, uh, you guys have... Uh, have, have really uh, attacked the six-month orientation process with, uh, with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and great ideas. And you, you uh, have helped to reinvigorate the program as the incoming R2s always do. And uh, don't think for a second that I don't appreciate that. Finally, uh, I, I got to get a shout out to Dr. Continenza, whose uh, excellent comment uh, was uh, miscorrectly attributed to uh, someone else by Dr. Latimer earlier. So, with that, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.